Welcome to the City Church Podcast, where we seek to help others follow Jesus in the everyday things of life. So we've been talking about uh, money and uh, all those kinds of things, finances over the last few weeks, and uh, we're going to continue along that theme a little bit, but we're also going to talk about what it means to be content. And just to unpack some of our own story again for you, because I want you to know that this applies to me. Like the people who stand up here, Josh talks about some of his struggles, and I know that uh, your leaders are not perfect. You probably know that already because you've heard them speak more often than I have. But growing up for us, Tammy and I grew up in different kinds of households when it came to money. Uh, I grew up in a family where our my parents lived on credit card debt in order to support their lifestyle. Maybe you have that kind of experience as me. My parents would often say if they could make the minimum payment on their credit cards, then life was good. Like they didn't consider themselves to be in trouble because they could keep everything going. Matter of fact, I even remember a time we happened to be visiting my parents. They lived in Florida at the time. And uh, my mom got her Sears bill. You guys remember Sears? We still even have Sears. I don't even know. But I got the Sears bill, and it had been paid off. And my mother said this word, uh, this phrase. She said, oh, we paid off Sears. We need to go buy something. And literally, we got in the car and went and bought something later that day. And, like, we bought some clothes for us and all those kinds of things. And so that was the family that I grew up in. Tammy grew up in the exact opposite kind of family. Her family rarely used credit. They saved before they bought, where our family bought before we saved. And, uh, and so it was a very different world for her. They paid cash for things, except for like houses and large purchases. And so credit was something that they didn't use in any time, or they used it very rarely. And so as you can imagine, when we got married, we had some issues in our marriage, not initially so much because she was working as a school teacher and I had a full-time job and so we had enough money to make ends meet and support our lifestyle. But after our son was born, our first child was born and my wife was able to stay home for a number of years, we didn't, or let me just say I didn't, adjust our budget to meet that income if that makes sense. And so I thought, okay, well, I grew up in a family that we just used a credit card. Like when we couldn't buy something with cash, we just get the credit card out and we would pay it off. And you buy that $200 or whatever it is that you're buying and you might pay $375 by the time you pay it all off, but it was worth it to us. And it got to the point where things got so bad at one time because I was doing the finances, and we would have these finance meetings, and I was able to doctor the books a little bit, not to let her know kind of where our spending was, what I was doing with credit that she really had no knowledge of. Matter of fact, honestly, after a time, I got a secret credit card, and I racked up thousands of dollars of debt on that card that she knew nothing about, because I was able to to finagle things and make the minimum payments and make it look better than it really was. Everything I saw that I I wanted, it became a need for me. Things like baseball tickets to the Rangers games, you know, and things like that that none of us can do without, obviously. Going to Kohl's and, you know, those shirts that you see on clearance guys especially, you know, and they're like 80% off. And so, like, you can buy like seven of them for the amount that you would buy one shirt. Like, I couldn't even go to Kohl's and be trusted (laughs) spending money. 
So it got to the point when that came out, there was a very painful experience for all of us. And for a time, I lost access to our, my debit card and to our credit cards, of course. And Tammy took over the finances and began to give me an allowance. And I would have to take, you know, a, a records of where even where that money went each month. And that she began to help us dig ourselves out of debt. It was painful. It was hard. It was lots of tears and anger. Lots of sorrow on my part after I recognized the depth of my sin and the deceit and the way that I bought into the lies that we've been talking about over the last several weeks of our culture that says we need this to be valuable and we need these things to be happy and all those other kinds of things. So it was a long and painful process for us and for our family, but thankfully God has led us out of that and so uh, I earn trust back. I, I do the budget now. We have budget meetings that we sit down and look at where I used to see the budget as something that was restrictive. I've come now to see how, how freeing it is because we know where our money is and it allows us to budget for things that we really do want. And it allows us also to be more generous than we ever imagined that we would because we budget for giving. And it's, it's funny, a lot of people budget for other things, but it's like, okay, we'll just give, we'll get to the 30th or the 31st, and like, whatever we have left, we'll just give. But we budget those things in advance, and it allows us to be more generous than we would ever have. And I could show you my wallet, actually, I don't have my wallet because I walked here this morning because we live close enough to be able to walk. And so I have credit cards and a debit card in my wallet, and all is good with us. So what I'm saying to you is I, I have messed up badly in this area. And our family has paid a price for that. And so I can relate to some of you who struggle with that same kind of struggle. And so this is so appropriate for us to address in the context of church and uh, what the Bible says about it. And this morning, I want to talk about money and finances and the idea of this idea of contentment. Josh has alluded to it several times. We've talked about contentment. It doesn't come easily or naturally to most of us. Matter of fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul, said in Philippians chapter 4, do you know what he says? He says, I have learned to be content in whatever state I am. If I have much or little, if I'm hot or cold, if I'm hungry or fed. So the Apostle Paul, like the Apostle Paul, the Paul that we read most of the New Testament about, he's the guy that learned how to be content. And if Paul can learn how to be content, hopefully that we can learn how to be content as well. And this morning, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 2 for a few minutes. And hopefully, we'll find some keys to contentment. If you have a Bible, it'll be on the screen uh, Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. He says, And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth that you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world. Rather, than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in human body, so you are also complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for a chance to unpack uh, these verses this morning and help us to find some keys to contentment. And God, for those of us who struggle 
with our spending and struggle with just this idea of discontentment. God, help us to see that in you, you have given us everything that we could ever wish for. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Paul alludes to three things this morning that leads us into a greater sense of contentment I want to unpack for us. The first one is he tells us in that verse 6 that we're to be rooted in Christ. Verse 7, let your roots grow down into him and let our lives be built on him. A couple of weeks ago, Josh mentioned this idea of soil. He talked about how if we are planted in the wrong kind of soil, then we're likely to produce the wrong kind of fruit. Makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, we just bought this house. Again, we moved from New York for the last seven years. We lived up there. There were certain things that grew in that soil that wouldn't grow in the soil that we came from in Texas. And there are certain things as we think about planting plants around our home and in our landscaping, we're going to look, okay, what are the best plants to grow here? And how do the plants cultivate here? Because it takes the right kind of soil to make the right kind of plant and to grow the right kind of fruit. And so Paul says that we are to grow our roots down into Christ. And being rooted in Christ helps us to produce those things that Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And when we're rooted in Christ, we can also experience contentment. Because when we're rooted in Christ, we know that God loves us. God's love is this funny kind of thing because we have this feeling of, oh, I feel like God loves me. And then sometimes we don't feel like God loves us because we feel like God is far away or God is not hearing our prayers. In the Old Testament, we see this word. I'm going to erase this. I don't know what this is from. This was, I am not a drawer like Josh is. And so you'll never see me draw a picture on the board unless you want me to draw you some stick figures, which I probably could do. But that is probably all I can do. But this idea of hesed love in the Old Testament, it's a Hebrew word. And I can't write it in Hebrew like whoever did this. That's very good. Did you do that, Cole? From Wednesday? Is this like Wednesday stuff? Oh, who did that? Oh, oh yeah, well, that's, that's good. All right. Well, hesed is an Old Testament term that's a central theological term that talks or describes God's love. The root word, root, <laughs> the root of this word really means to bow one's head. So it's an idea of, of great honor and great love, great uh, relationship. It's actually this idea of a covenant relationship. It's the idea that God has covenanted with us. And the problem with this word in the Hebrew is it really has no English equivalent. It's hard to translate. It's one of those words that they struggle to translate when they were translating the Bible. One resource I read, it said it's been translated 169 different ways across six translations. So some of the most common ones include mercy or unfailing love, loyal love, kindness, steadfast love, steadfast love, faithfulness. As a matter of fact, the word loving kindness, and sometimes you read that in the Bible, the word loving kindness was created to try to capture the essence of this word hesed. God's loving kindness toward us, or our loving kindness toward other people. Maybe you've read the book of Ruth, and in Ruth we see Boaz, and he has this hesed love toward Ruth. Ruth has this hesed love toward Naomi. And so it's, it can be between person and person, but the, the central way that it's used in the Bible is the way that it describes God's love and action toward us. 
because of his love. One professor at Winston, uh, Westminster University, Old Testament scholar, put it this way. He says, God, having entered a relationship, a covenant relationship with his people, God bound himself to act toward them in certain ways, and he's utterly faithful to that self-commitment. Now, when we say our marriage vows, those of you who've been married, husband and wife, we say vows to each other, we promise to do some things. How many of you are utterly faithful to keep those vows? None of us. God is utterly faithful to keep the promises that he made for us. He is the only one who is able to do that. He is completely faithful because he is completely committed. And so God uses this hesed to describe himself and Moses. When he meets Moses on Mount Sinai, we read these words in Exodus chapter 34, 6 and 7. It says, the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. The book of Lamentations, maybe you've read it. It's a book by Jeremiah that laments the condition of the people of Israel. They've rebelled against God. They're in captivity, and God has seemingly left them. Even though he hasn't left them, that's what it looks like because they've turned to worship idols instead of worshiping God. But Jeremiah writes these words in Lamentations chapter 3. He says, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. Hesed, the God who keeps his promises. And then in Psalm 136, we read these words, just at the very beginning of that Psalm, one through three, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of God. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts. His faithful love endures forever. And if you read the rest of that Psalm, the psalmist lists the ways that God has worked in the people of Israel, bringing them out of captivity, helping them cross the Red Sea on dry land, bringing them into the land of promise, providing meat and manna for them throughout the days of their wanderings. And after each phrase, the psalmist writes, his faithful love endures forever. This hesed kind of love that God loves us with. As a matter of fact, one of the real practical things that any of us could do when we feel like God doesn't love us or God is not listening to us or we feel discontent is maybe write your own psalm. Say, okay, God has done this and God has done this and God has done this. And between every one of those things that God has done, you write this phrase, his faithful love endures forever. Because let's face it, there are times when we feel like God doesn't love us. We feel like God maybe has forgotten us. And it's good to go back to those words to remember God's work in our lives. So remembering the faithful love that God has for us, reminding us that God loves us, that we're rooted in God's love, is one of the keys for us to stay content. Secondly, Paul says that we are to resist empty philosophy. Some of your translations may use empty deceit. These empty philosophies are empty deceit. Again, we've talked about this in our series this week, uh, the last several weeks, but our culture is constantly lying to us. Satan is called what? One of his, what are one of his titles? Anybody know? 
The father of what? Lies. Satan uses our culture. He uses our own sinfulness to turn our hearts against God. Matter of fact, the writer of Proverbs says the heart is the most deceitful part of our body, that we can't trust it. And so here's one of my questions for us, because when we think about the lies that the culture says to us, I've told you, I bought into one of the lies. That what I had, what I could control with my money, was something that I needed. Like, I, I needed this to make me happy. I needed this to give me value. What are some other lies that, are, that our culture tells us? Or what are some lies that we hear from our culture that it is easy for us to buy into if we're not careful? This is audience participation time. Come on, Nick. Okay. So, yeah, so money equals security. The more money we have, the more secure that we feel, can we feel like we are. What else? It's only $5. Okay. Yeah. You don't see how those $5 add up over and over and over again. What else? What about more money equals more happiness or value? We tend to put people who are more wealthy maybe on a, a different plane. What else? Anything else? All right, yeah. Money brings status. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it may not just be the physical money like your bank account, but the amount of stuff you have, the kind of car that you drive. I mean, man, when my friends get new cars, my car starts to look a lot worse than I thought it did like an hour ago or a day ago. I start comparing myself to what they have. So it's, it's, it's a slippery road for us. And it's a slippery road for me. I, I promise you, when I got into my marriage and I started managing my money, I never meant to lead us to the place where I led us, where we ended up. And that's so much of what happens to us when we are in, trapped in sin and, and the things that we do. February 17th, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, there was an article in a lot of the financial papers noting this, uh, uh, we're approaching a significant milestone in America in the amount of debt that we have. Did anybody read this article or you're familiar with this information? The significant number is $1 trillion of personal debt. Here's what the article says. Credit card balances increased more than $60 billion over the last three months ending in December. So October, or November, October, November, and December of 2022. That lifts the total amount of U.S. credit card debt to an all-time high of $986 billion. That's with a B. $986 billion. And the article goes on to talk about personal credit card debt. Here it was that we drilled down to what we are. He says the average credit card user carried a balance of $5,805. So this figure right here, 5805 So you can 
think in your head? Like, am I average or am I above average or below average? Over the last three months of 2022, that figure marks an 11% increase over the year prior. So what it tells us is uh, we're using our credit cards more and we're carrying more balance than maybe we did in the past. And again, this is credit card debt alone. It doesn't include your mortgage or your car loan or any other loans. Maybe you're paying off student loans or all those kinds of things. It is credit card debt alone. Now, this is not a finance seminar. I'm not telling you to cut up your credit cards. Some of you may need to reevaluate how you use them or hide them in a really good hiding place for a little while so that you won't find them for a while. Or maybe you make decisions about them. Because see, here's the deal. The credit card in itself is not evil. The problem is us. When we start to look at things the wrong way, we start getting discontent. Because used the right way, credit cards can actually help you at times. Uh, we use them, but we pay them off every single month. The reason we fill up the cars with gas, it's just easier to pay at the pump than to go into the front and pay with cash. We use them when we make big purchases. We just bought some appliances for our new house, and so we used credit card for that, but we have money set aside to pay that off. We take our trip to travel. We use credit card just because it's easier than trying to figure out how much cash to carry. But we pay those things off because we have made sure that we're saving before we're buying. It's a new philosophy for me. It's not a new philosophy, but now it's something I didn't grow up with. And even in our credit cards, we use certain cards. We get points or cash back or airline miles, and so we're able to use those for other things. So the issue for many of us is not the credit card. It's the, the lie that we bought into. We've been de uh, deceived into thinking that we need something that we really don't or that we have to have something now instead of waiting a few months to get it later. And sometimes we don't even recognize a lie. This was a funny quote. Tammy had this in some of her material that she shared with me along this topic. There's a guy named Dr. Timothy Levine. And he's considered one of the world's leading experts on deception. Now, I don't know how you get to be a world's leading expert on deception. Maybe you lie really good. I don't know how you've done it. Had a lot of practice. I'm not sure how that worked. But this is what he said. He said, even the most intelligent human beings are terrible at lie detection. And let's face it, we've all bought into a lie at some point that we haven't seen. Like, I can't believe I was duped by that. Maybe it's a salesman trying to sell you the best vacuum cleaner that you've ever bought in your life. Maybe it's something bigger or smaller, but we've all been duped into buying something. You see those ads on TV, like you're watching late night TV, like you can buy this for three easy payments of $9.99. Like, oh yeah, I got to have that. Some gadget in the kitchen. I bought a lot of those, believe me. And so here's the problem. Money isn't the only area that, that we buy into a lie. What are some other areas that we buy into lies or deception? What are some other areas where we have been deceived in the past? Anybody? A job. Like if I just get this job, man, everything will be easy. A, a relationship. Man, I am so unhappy in this relationship, but if I, if I could just marry this kind of person, then everything would be just perfect. Maybe even religious activity. Maybe if I'm just good enough, then God is going to bless me or God owes me something because look how good I am. 
our morality, all those kinds of things. We, we put our eggs in those baskets thinking if we just do that, then we'll be content. I'll just be a little bit happier with this, a little bit more. If I just get this raise, everything will be perfect. But how do we start recognizing the lies? My wife, Tammy, does a lot of work with church planting wives and coaching and things like that. And she had shared some material with me uh, and she uses an acronym BASH. And it's a really good practical kind of tool that she has helped others. And she um, uh, was willing to share that uh, with me today to be able to use. But it's, it's a way to better recognize the lies, the deceit of the empty philosophies of our culture. It'll be on the screen here for you. And if you want to take a note in your uh, Bible or write it down on your phone or whatever, but it's BASH. It's an acronym. The first one is to be alert. To be alert. Uh, Peter writes these words in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And let's face it, our feelings are one of the key uh, indicators that maybe we've been taken captive by this empty deceit. We start to feel discontent. We start to feel angry because somebody else has gotten something that we feel like we deserve. We start to feel resentful. We start to feel sorry for ourselves. We start to have these looping judgmental thoughts where we just can't get this out of our head. We turn toward others or myself they're indicators that we veered into this idea of empty deceit, the toxic thinking. So we need to be alert. We need to be aware of what we're feeling and how, what's that doing for us. Be aware of how the enemy works for us because what's tempting for you may be different than what's tempting for me. So B is be alert. Secondly, A is ask. Again, Psalm 42, 11, we read these words. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? Uh, the psalmist asked the client, like, why am I so distinct, uh, stinking discouraged? He didn't say stinking, but I just added that in there. But sometimes we do that. Like, why do I feel this way? Why am I so discouraged? Like, God has blessed me with so much. So we need to ask ourselves, Remember the quote, even the most intelligent human beings are terrible at lie detection. So fortunately, we don't have to rely on our own abilities, right? Like God gives us his spirit. Jesus says, like, if you ask, it will be given to you. Luke eleven thirteen. so if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? John 16, 13, the beginning of that says, when the spirit of the truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And so when we're willing to ask, like, God will answer. Again, it may not be the answer we want or the answer we're looking for. It may not be the answer that we want, like, right this second. It may not come like we want it to. But we ask, God, like, God, why? Thirdly, is we savor silence and stillness. Like, when we ask questions, we have to give them space to, to answer, to, to, for God to work. You ever been a part of a conversation like this? Somebody will ask you a question, like, then they'll answer it, like, five seconds later. Like, wait a minute, I thought you were asking me my opinion. No, they just wanted to tell you their opinion. But when we ask Again, the psalmist in Psalm chapter 5 says, Listen to my voice in the morning, Lord. Each morning 
I bring my request to you and I wait, what? Expectantly. Wait expectantly. Savor stillness and silence. I do not do this very well. I've been doing a devotional off and on for the last few months on emotional health. And one of the things, it starts every devotion with two minutes of silence and stillness before the Lord. Like, you know how long two minutes is? Like when you're just like being still and trying not to think about anything but the Lord? It's hard. And so most of us, man, we have a, a moment, we pick up the phone and we start to scroll through Facebook or, or respond to email or text. And we turn on the TV because we need some sound. But let me encourage you, man, to savor silence and stillness. Get away from technology for a little bit. Take a hike or a walk and do something that gets you in touch with your feelings and with God. Who you hear the whole the Holy Spirit wants to say. And then the H is to hope and hesed. Again, it's this idea that we put our roots down in the fact that God loves us. Like we walk in that truth. Like we already know that he loves us. He has proved it. If you read your Bible from beginning to end, it is a story of God's redemption for us. Over and over and over again, God rescues his people. And we know that God loves us, that God is bound to act in a certain way toward us, that he keeps his promises. He is completely faithful. He is completely good. There is no error in God. And he is committed to our transformation into the image of Christ. And so he doesn't give us everything we want because everything we want doesn't conform to the image of Christ. So be alert. Ask. Savor stillness and silence. Hope and hesed. When we're bashful, like what I did there, bashful, it'll help us resist the enemy's philosophies. The culture offers deceit helps us uncover the truth and learn contentment. And then the third thing that Paul mentions in these verses is that we ought to rest in gratitude. He says, literally tells him to be overflowing with thankfulness. Overflowing with thankfulness. One writer put it this way. He says, such abundance of thanks comes as a result of and a response of God's grace in Christ. So the more we let our roots grow deeply into Christ, the more we're built up in him and the more we grow in our understanding of our faith, the more we will overflow with gratitude. You see, it's all connected. It's circular. We trust God because he loves us. We grow our roots down in him. And then because we do those things, we become more thankful. It's a byproduct of growing our roots in Christ and letting God's love surround us. We celebrate a holiday called Thanksgiving, right? We do that here in America. In that season, we're especially attuned to Thanksgiving. We see things like be thankful on people's Facebook feeds. And we, we gather around for a meal with family or friends on that Thursday. And somebody will typically offer a prayer of thanksgiving. Or maybe you'll go around the table and let's say, what, what one, one thing you're thankful for? So we highlight that at that time. But even that gets a little bit squeezed out, doesn't it? Because we're making our plans for good Friday shopping. And we know we got to get to bed early because we got to get up like at 3 o'clock in the morning. So we get in lines. So we get the TV that we want that's on sale. Or we have football games to watch, and so we engineer meals like at halftime of this particular game, make sure that works out right. So what happens is it becomes squeezed. Even the Christmas holiday decorations are up like at Halloween, and so everybody's talking about Christmas, even in the midst of Thanksgiving. 
But Paul's idea of gratitude doesn't depend on a holiday. It's a response to the continued good work that God does in us, the continued love that he displays toward us. Paul David Tripp, one of my favorite writers, wrote a blog back in 2015 entitled, How Thankful Are You? And he talks about two types of people here. He talks about the entitled complaining person. So you have the entitled complaining person. And guess what kind of person they are? Anybody want to guess? Entitled and complaining. The world revolves around them. You may not say that out loud, but that's what they, how they live or what they believe. They believe that they deserve certain things because of their status. Again, going back to status or their worth, they find their worth in what they uh, get or what they do. And because the world doesn't really exist to serve any of us, they constantly complain because they didn't get what they thought they deserved. And their grumbling and complaining is grounded in the root of their heart because they don't see themselves as they really are. They're foolish and arrogant. And they bought into the sly and so they become entitled complaining. And then you have opposite of them, you have the humble, thankful person. And this person is the opposite of that person who's entitled and complaining. They view themselves through the lens of Scripture. They are not the center of the universe, but God is the center of the universe. And all of creation speaks to God's glory and reflects his character. It's not about, it's about God. It's not about me. And so we see ourselves in its proper context, but we know some things about ourselves because we know what the Bible says. Paul Tripp writes these words that follow. He says, the gospel tells me that I'm not a good person. In fact, I'm a wicked person. And the only thing I deserve is this, in this life, is God's wrath. That is exactly what we deserve. So if I remember that in an act of outrageous grace, God turned his face of mercy and kindness toward me. And that every good thing in my life is an undeserved blessing. Feelings of humility and thankfulness rather than entitlement and disappointment will fill my heart. Instead of trying to exploit situations, locations, and relationships in life to serve me, I'll now approach people and places with a servant's heart. I'll be so overwhelmed with gratitude at the sacrifice of Christ that my life will now be defined by similar sacrifice. Man, we'll look at God's grace that he has given us. and We'll say, wow, my God, don't deserve that. Any of us have chosen to follow Christ. Like we know, like we are wicked. And left to ourselves, we will only serve us. We will become that entitled complaining person if we just let our natural selves come out. But we remember what Christ has done for us. We experience this feeling of gratitude. We become humble and thankful and we want to serve others and share with others what God has done for us. But here's the problem that I found myself in a few years ago. When I think about following God and walking by faith, it's easy to think about just following the rules. Like if I just, if I just do this, and like just give me a list of things to do. But God doesn't want us to follow his rules, just follow his rules. He wants us. 
like he wants us. Those of you who are parents, those of us who are parents, we want our kids to mind, right? You want your kids to mind? Everybody's got kids? Of course we do. But we don't just want them to mind because they're afraid of the punishment we might give them. We want a relationship with them. And like Luke says, and like Jesus says, if we know how to give good gifts to our children, like what does God know? He knows even better the kinds of gifts that we need. God loves us fully and completely. We have to remember that over and over and over again. We are here a couple of Sundays ago and Josh used 1 Timothy as his text for his sermon. And I've been thinking about that over the last couple of weeks. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. It says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. It's a reminder for all of us to stay rooted in Christ's love and God's love, to resist the temptation of following after those empty philosophy, that deceit, that our culture, and that the father lies, Satan will want to lead us down this path that we never intended to go. It's a reminder of the pain that we experience when we do those things, the pain I experienced, my family experienced. Experienced all kinds of sorrow because of my sin. Sorrow over the deceit. <laughs> sorrow over the loss of trust. Sorrow over the, the stuff that we could have done with that money that instead of being able to use it for our family went to pay off my debt. But when I heard that verse a couple of weeks ago, it reminded me of another verse that we read in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah uses a similar kind of language. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him, and he looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. It was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Jesus, like he was a man of sorrows. He had no sin of his own, but he carried our sin. He was pierced for our rebellion, pierced for the financial rebellion that I committed, the sinful rebellions, the times that we are deceived by our culture, we turn our back on God or turn our back on each other. He was pierced for those. Our enemy comes to deceive us. Satan, the father lies, but Jesus says what? He's come to give us life and to give it more abundantly. And if God is willing to sacrifice his own son to take away our sin, to give us that gift, why would we not think that God will give us every other gift that we ever need? Not that we ever want, but everything that we ever need, God provides for us because why? Because he is a God who keeps his promise, a God who keeps his covenant, a God of love, Hesed kind of love that's committed to acting toward us in a certain way that will never, ever, ever ever change. 
He wants to give us the best gift. And the best gift he gives is the gift that he gives in his son, Christ, who makes it possible for us to have a relationship with him. To go from his enemy to his friend, from an orphan to family, to a co-heir with Christ. So we can rest in contentment in that relationship. And as we struggle with contentment here on this earth, we can do these things that Paul calls us to do, to stay rooted in Christ's love, to watch out for those empty deceit, those philosophies that the world offers that are lies, and then have our lives overflow with thankfulness of gratitude. This podcast was produced by Illuminate Media Group. Any music and sound effects are licensed through Soundstripe. Thank you for listening, and we will see you on the next episode.